Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Cam. I'm one of the pastors here at Grant. And I want to welcome you, uh, whether you are here in person or if you are joining us online on this August long weekend. I anticipate uh, that through what uh, that camera's on, through that camera there, there's a whole bunch of people at their cabins and stuff tuning in. So hello, welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. Now, speaking of online, what is your password? I, I don't know what for, uh, but I just thought I'd throw it out there and see if anyone fell for it. If you did, if, if someone close to you yelled out a password of some sort, you may want to encourage them to change that particular one. But uh, passwords are such funny things, aren't they? Right? When, when entering our interact pins, we act as though it's like a safe combination to some precious rubies, right? We're like, you know, covering it up, forgetting the fact that we're probably only protecting about $4 in our checking account. Or when it comes to computers, uh, every website, every piece of software, every online service, every app requires that passwords have at least eight characters, that they're made up of symbols and numbers and capitals, that you change them regularly, you know, to stay ahead of the criminals vying to read a free article on your free press account, or, uh, or change the base volume levels on your headphones app, or heaven forbid, get, earn you some extra Kadoba points. Now, I'm not against passwords. We need them. They are important, and they are what provide us with access or entrance to the things that we need or are entitled to. But sometimes, our preoccupation with and rules surrounding how we get in to whatever it is that we need to gain access to can actually be a hindrance to our own admittance. If you're anything like me, the need for constantly updated passwords and the rules that govern them results usually in me not having a clue what my passwords are. Anybody been there before? Right? Punching in random variations of your favorite password until you're actually locked out of your account for a few days. Right? It's not a unique thing for me to find myself muttering, what is the password? Right? Well, in our text today, as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark, we meet a gentleman who asks this very question. What is the password when it comes to salvation? Right? What do I need to do? What do I need to say to gain entrance into the kingdom of God? And for the answer and the lead up as well, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 13. All right, Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said, to them, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. 
As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell at his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible but not with God. All things are possible with God. Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, as we dig into the word today, God, that you would boldface what you want to stick with us. God, I pray that we would leave change as a result of encountering your word this morning. Amen. So it isn't until about midway through our text that we have the password question. But it seems that that this theme of the entire passage is the password question. What is required for entrance into God's kingdom? So let's start at the very top, and we're going to walk through the text looking for clues about who the kingdom of God is for. Okay, so starting at the top, verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. Okay, so Jesus at this time is still likely teaching in Perea. Sorry, I don't have a map, but it's, uh, it's on the, uh, he had crossed over the Jordan River, was teaching in Perea, and then was going to cross back over to the other side as he continued his journey uh, to Jerusalem. But he's still likely in Perea where the Pharisees had tried to trap him with their question about divorce that we studied last week. Now it seems that people were bringing their children to Jesus so that he would bless them. Now it is normal, or it was normal in Jesus' day to bring children to a rabbi for a blessing, right? So this isn't too out of the ordinary. But the disciples evidently didn't see this as a good use of Jesus' time, and they shooed people away, even rebuking them for their actions, right? Surely Jesus' time was better spent teaching, interacting with the higher-ups, or healing those with significant needs, they thought. But Jesus didn't agree with them. Verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Jesus was indignant, the text says, which is a sort of a a burning anger caused by an injustice, right? This isn't just annoyance or or correction. Jesus noticed an injustice being done, and he was mad about it. And so right off the top, one thing that we learn from Jesus' reaction is that according to Jesus, kids are not a burden, right? Right? 
Well, while the disciples rolled their eyes and were annoyed at their presence, Jesus affirms that children are not a burden. I want you to turn to the person that you're sitting beside and say that. Children are not a burden. Especially effective if it's a child you're sitting beside. (laughs) Or if you are a child, saying that to the person you're with. Now, the reason that I want to make sure that we hear this is because our culture is increasingly siding with the disciples on this one, that kids are a burden rather than an absolute blessing from God. Do you remember our worldview conversation from last week? Christians believe in a creative, intentional God, right, that he created And we believe that what he created, he designed intentionally and with a purpose. Well, because of that, we as a community of believers value what God made intentionally. So we must value children, right? Every child that has been or is currently being lovingly knit together in their mother's womb, Psalm 139, is a blessing from God and not an obstacle to overcome. Now, I'm not saying that kids are easy. They are certainly not easy. I have a nearly two-year-old in my home right now, not to mention the teen and the preteen. And I will be the first person to say that children are tiring, they are demanding, they are expensive, they are inconvenient in the pursuit of personal comfort and ease. But they are beautiful image bearers of God uniquely and wonderfully made by a master designer that does not make mistakes, right? That is how a child ought to be seen through the eyes of someone who believes that God created and that what God created is good. But unfortunately, we don't say that enough, right? Church, the world should know that we love and cherish and value children, Right? Our own children, the children in our neighborhoods, in our churches, children in the foster care system, all children have incredible value to God, and they should to us as well, and everybody should know that. And this is so important in a world where it has become a trend on social media in particular for moms to slander their children by posting that they need their wine or their coffee to deal with their kids. Their kids are so crazy. Or, or they post how their life gets exponentially better when their kids are sleeping or when they're at grandma and grandpa's for the weekend. Right? This toxic mom culture, as it's called, even if it's done in a, in a joking way, devalues children. Right? And it says to the world that kids aren't worth it, that they're a burden, and life would be better without them. Think about that. Friends, may we never take part in this. May we, may the world see and hear how much we value that which God has created. Children are not a burden. They are a blessing. Human life is not an obstacle. Life is a gift. As Psalm 127 says, children are a gift from the Lord. They are a a reward from him. Let the little children come to me, Jesus says. They are worth it. They are special. They are deeply loved by God. 
And then Jesus says, in fact, you could learn something from these kids. Verse uh, 14 to 16 says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. What an incredible thought, right? When was the last time that you looked at your kids or your grandkids or the kids in your Sunday school class or the neighborhood children and asked what you can learn from them? How you can be more like them. Have you ever thought about that? Warren Wearsby says, We often tell children to behave like adults, but Jesus tells the adults to model themselves after the children. Jesus says when it comes to faith, adults need to take their cues from little kids. Perhaps it was the annoying adults that the disciples should have been shooing away, right? But regardless, Jesus makes the the first statement about the requirements to enter the kingdom of God. He says it must be entered with a childlike faith. Must be entered with a childlike faith. Now, it's important to note the difference between childlike and childish, right? Childlike and childish are not quite the same thing. Jesus is not saying that we enter with impulsivity, with ignorance, with naivete. No, Jesus here is emphasizing where a childlike faith is placed. Right? That's the point that he's making. You see, if I'm hungry and I need to eat, who do I trust to take care of that need? Well, myself, right? I'm an adult. Right? I'm, I can do that. So I, I trust in myself. It's, it's in my own hands that, that I look to to provide for my need. Right? Adult-like faith trusts in the self. Now, if a little child is hungry, who do they trust in? They trust in their parents. Right? Or another adult. They don't put faith in themselves. They submit to another. They receive food, not because they've done anything, but because they are loved and cared for and provided for by someone else. New Testament commentator James R. Edwards says this, To receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credits, no clout, no claims. A little child has absolutely nothing to bring And whatever a child receives, he or she receives by grace on the basis of sheer neediness rather than by any merit inherent in him or herself. Did you catch that? Children receive on the basis of their neediness, not their merit. And that is the only way the kingdom of God can be received. It is in our neediness and humility that we will find ourselves trusting in the Father rather than in ourselves. As we read in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith it is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. There is nothing we can know do, be, or say that grants us entrance into the kingdom. I mentioned that we have a little one at home. And while it doesn't happen nearly as often as she would like, 
Sometimes she gets to watch a show on her iPad, right, which she loves. Now, here's the thing. She doesn't know the password. She can't go get the iPad, turn it on, find the right app, and start watching, right? She probably could. I mean, young kids can do everything on technology these days, but the way we have it set up, she can't do that herself because she doesn't know how. But she receives the benefit of the fact that we know how and we have the password, Right? And because we do, she gets the benefit of watching a show, but her watching hinges completely on us and has nothing to do with her own skills, her own knowledge, or actions. And in the same way, church, when it comes to this password question about the kingdom of God, we don't need to know the password because we know the one who does, the one who has the keys to eternal life. To enter the kingdom, we must receive it as a little child who has done nothing to deserve it, aside from simply being loved. Well, after this encounter, Jesus continues on his journey, making his way towards Jerusalem. Uh, Verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So they they leave the place where the children are, and an adult runs up to Jesus. And not just any adult, an adult of high status and influence. And now just as an aside, did anyone else notice that the disciples let him come to Jesus? They didn't stop him as they did the children, right? This man of status wasn't seen to be a waste of time like the kids had been. Now we're not going to set up there, but it's interesting that a man like this obviously had easy access. Now, what do I mean by a man like this? Well, Mark 10, 22, at the end of this encounter, tells us that this was a rich man. We read, he went away sad because he had great wealth, so we know that he was rich. In addition, Matthew 19, 22, in another telling of this encounter, tells us that he was young. Right? The, the verse says, when the young man heard this. So this man had accumulated his wealth quickly and was set up for an entire life of luxury. Not only that, uh, this man had social significance. Luke 18, 18 suggests that he was a ruler of some sort. A certain ruler asked Jesus, which is somewhat of a vague term that could be used for really anyone in the ruling classes, right? We can't be sure exactly what his specific role was aside from the fact that he had power and influence and that he was at least to an extent known to the people. And we also know from our text that he was Jewish and was a devout one at that since he had, as verse 20 says, kept the law since he was a boy. And what we see here right away is that to this man... None of these characteristics were enough. He still felt empty, unsure, and unfulfilled. Right? He had great wealth. He had great status. He had health. He had religious accolades. He had everything this world suggests that one would need to be happy. And yet, look at how he approaches Jesus. Verse 17. A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Right? This is the same approach that we have seen those with crippling illnesses take before Jesus. This is with the same desperation that we have seen parents plead on behalf of their dying children. Right? This man, well, having it all together on the outside was missing something on the inside. And he came to Jesus to see what he was missing, what he could add to his portfolio 
right? Health, wealth, status, religious clout. What, what else was there? What else could he do, right? At, at this point, it's obvious that this man wasn't present just moments ago as Jesus was describing the importance of childlike faith. While Jesus' words were still echoing out that the kingdom is for those who are helpless, this man asks how he can help himself. What can I do, the man says. What is the password so I can enter it myself? What do I need to do or say in order to be granted access? Jesus, what am I missing? Well, Jesus, rather than getting uh, straight to the point, as he almost always does, answers a question with a question. Verse 18. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus says this in response to this man's greeting of him as good teacher, right? He approached him, he said, good teacher, And what Jesus is doing here is using a rhetorical device to set up the rest of the dialogue. You see, Jesus declares, uh, hidden in this question, at the outset of the conversation, that only God is good, only God is righteous, insinuating that only God could ever possibly earn salvation or do anything to gain it, because only God is perfect. And therefore, right, this is the insinuation, you are not God, so therefore there is nothing you can do to inherit eternal life, right? The answer is right there, but the man doesn't quite get it. And so Jesus goes on and he asks the man, well, what does the law say? Similar to last week, Jesus asks those who lean on the law to be true to their ways and lean on the law to answer their question. In a sense, he says, well, what do you think the password is? And he does so by pointing to the law itself. Verse 19. He says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now notice this is not an exhaustive list. To which predictably, the man says, I've done all that. Right? Essentially declaring, in contrast to what Jesus has already said, I am good. Right? Verse 20. Teacher, he declared, I have kept all these since I was a boy. Right? I've done all that the law says. I've fulfilled the requirements of the law. I am good. I have the accreditations. I have the accomplishments. I should be given the password. I should have access to eternal life. And here we see that not only did this man miss the previous conversation, but he also evidently had a bad seat at the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus pointed out the real requirements of the law, that to, look, to even look at a woman lustfully is adultery, or to simply call someone an idiot is murder. Right? The reality is that none of us, this man included, have kept the commandments in letter and in spirit. We have all fallen short. Hence, Jesus' reminder earlier that only God is good. Right? It is only by his merit through his forgiveness, that we are saved, right? What this man is missing is that he hasn't realized his own failures and trusted in God for salvation, which is the second point that Jesus makes here about the qualifications of those who enter the kingdom. They enter with empty hands. 
They enter with empty hands, which is really similar to the first point, a childlike faith. And it is intimately connected to what we discussed two weeks ago when Jesus talked about the reality of sin. Right? We can, like this man, think all we want that we are without sin, that we are good people. We've done all we need to do to earn our salvation, that somehow we've upheld our end of the deal, or God owes it to us to give us an eternal blessing. In fact, if you were to go outside right now and ask almost anyone if they think they will go to heaven, they will likely respond that they will. Why? Because they're a good person. Right? I'm a good person. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but you know, I, I'm a pretty good person. But remember Jesus' question? He told the man and us that only God is good. We read this in Romans 3, 10 to 12. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So there goes that whole, I'm a good person thing. And because none of us are good, Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of us then have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. What a powerful verse. The righteous acts of the unrighteous actually don't mean anything. Right? The good works of one who isn't good are relatively worthless. Let me explain. Let's say that someone broke into your house and stole all of your belongings. Right? They took everything of value and just broke everything else. They traumatized your dog, and now you can't sleep at night because you're fearful that this will happen again. Right? This is a bad thing. But let's say the following week, you received a thank you note from the person who broke into your house. It said, you know, hey, thanks for all the good stuff. Right? Sorry it had to, you, had to be you, nothing personal. Right? Your TV's really nice, by the way. I'm enjoying the clarity of the picture. Here's a Tim's card to get yourself a coffee. I hope this makes everything better. Have a nice day. Yours truly, Rob. <laughs> I'm glad you got that. That's good. <laughs> Let me ask you, how well would that note go over? Not very well, I can imagine. Right? It wouldn't mean anything to you. Sure, it's a nice note, but it doesn't make anything better. If anything, it would be a, more like a slap in the face, right? The, a righteous act of an unrighteous person is like a filthy rag. It is of no value. Well, friends, as we've already seen, we are not righteous. We are the bad guy, right? We all sin, and our sin is rebellion against God, Isaiah 66. Our sin separates us from God, Isaiah 59. Our sin pollutes the order of the world, Genesis 3. Our sin harms that which God has created, Romans 8. Our sin demands Christ's death on the cross, Romans 6. And so parading around our little good deeds and expecting them to make everything right with God is missing the fact that our deeds are worthless to that end. 
right? Any accolades that we bring to God, any credits we have that we think we can cash in are like dirty rags. We have nothing to offer that puts us in good standing with God, that makes us worthy of inheriting the password to eternal life. It is only through what someone else has done It is only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can enter into the presence of God and have eternal life. As Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or as we read in Acts 4, 12, and there is salvation for no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 5 affirms this, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Salvation only comes through Jesus Christ, not through our own actions, through our good deeds, for being a good person, following the law, church attendance. The kingdom of God is for those who lay down their accolades and come to God empty-handed, Trusting alone, not in what I can do, but in what Jesus did for me. Well, to this man's response that he had fulfilled the law, verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Isn't it kind that Jesus, even in saying the really hard things, does it with compassion, with great love, because that's who he is? And what he says to the man here with extreme empathy is that those who enter the kingdom must do so with an undivided heart. They must enter with an undivided heart. Jesus knew that there was more going on that even if this man had been successful in upholding those commandments that he listed, which again, wasn't an exhaustive list, by the way, there was one commandment that he certainly wasn't living up to. Commandment number one, Exodus 20, verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus knew that this man had made an idol out of money. Right? Jesus knew that money was this man's God, and it was keeping him from giving the one true God his whole heart. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Right? Jesus may well have just quoted this verse to this man. Right? It's spot on. If you want to enter the kingdom, Jesus says, I need to be your God. The kingdom is for those who serve the king. And right now, I am not your king. I'm second best, at best, in your life. If you want to enter my kingdom, you need to rearrange your priorities. You need to kill that idol in your life. And in order to do that, you Young man, need to sell all you have. Now, we do need to know and acknowledge that this is a big ask. Right? How many of us 
even those who, who don't you know, think that we have an issue with money, would be willing right now, this moment, to go home and sell everything we have if Jesus told us to. And notice that this command wasn't moderate, right? He didn't say, go sell some of what you have, right? Keep what you need, obviously, but eliminate some of the luxuries. No, he says, get rid of it all. Why? Well, just as a recovering alcoholic can't just keep drinking a little bit, you can't hold on to that which tempts you away from Christ. Right? This is precisely what we talked about two weeks ago. Remember Mark 9, 43? If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. That's what Jesus is telling this man to do. Your wealth and possessions are keeping you from me. Cut them off and come to me with empty hands and an undivided heart. And as we read on, we see that Jesus' diagnosis was right. Verse 22. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, typically, and most likely, people assume that this man said no to Jesus. That he went away sad because he chose wealth over Jesus. And as likely as this is, we don't actually know. Perhaps he was sad to give it all up, but he eventually did. We, we just don't know. But what we do know is that in that moment, he had a decision to make. To choose who or what he would give his life to. And friends, we have that same decision to make too. As the Israelites are invited to do in Joshua 24, 15, we all must choose for ourselves this day whom we will serve. And it's here that we realize that this passage isn't really about money. It, it, this isn't a universal command for all of us to go and sell all that we have. Right? This passage is not saying that you cannot be faithful to Christ and have money. You can. There are faithful people with riches throughout the scriptures. Job had an unsurpassed wealth and God declared him as blameless and upright. Abraham was said to be very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. Joseph of Arimathea had great wealth and followed Jesus. Right? Money and faithfulness are not mutually exclusive. Right? Jesus isn't demanding that we should all be poor Rather, he's asking us to identify the idols in our lives and eliminate them. And for this particular man, money, his wealth was his idol. Right? We, we read earlier that this man had status. Well, Jesus didn't tell him to go quit his job. He had authority. He didn't tell him to, you know, humble himself. This particular man, for this particular man, wealth was the idol that he put above God. But Jesus may very well have told him to eliminate those other things if they had been what was keeping him from giving him his undivided heart. And for us, it could be a number of things. It may be status. It may be power or control over something or someone. It may be business success. It may be comfort and safety. It may be a relationship. Only you can determine what it is that maybe you may be serving above Christ. And only you can make the decision about whether you will get rid of it so you can give God everything. Now, I don't want us to exhale when it comes to money. Phew, Cam just said the passage wasn't about money. Cha-ching, right? Well, the reality is that money may not be an idol for everyone, 
but it certainly is for many, right? For many of us, we become slaves to money, whether we have it or whether we don't, right? In our culture, money is seldom simply about meeting our needs, mostly because we have a really hard time pinning down what our needs are. When asked once, how much money is enough? John D. Rockefeller, still thought by historians to be one of the richest men to ever live, replied, just a little bit more. That's the hard part about money. If we're short of money, we think that we'll be happy with just a little bit more. And then when we get to that, we realize, oh, just a bit beyond that. And so it goes, driving our plans, our careers, generosity, as we chase the idol of money. Right? And here, Jesus even points out that money is a common and dangerous idol. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Right? It's much easier to come to Jesus empty-handed when your hands were empty to begin with than it is to let go of much. Right? May we all be careful about the position we give money in our lives because money has a unique ability to force its way onto the throne. While the disciples, upon hearing this, are somewhat confused. Verse 24 to 26. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Then who can be saved? Christian author Sky Jathani provides explanation for their amazement. He says, This statement astonished those who heard it. The popular belief at the time was that God blessed, had blessed the rich, those possessing health, wealth, and comfort, for their righteous devotion. Being rich was tangible proof of God's approval. Right? So the rich of the day saw their blessing as affirmation of their righteousness. So for Jesus to say that the rich couldn't enter the kingdom of God was absurd to the disciples because if the rich were the righteous ones and the righteous ones couldn't enter the kingdom of God, then who could? Now, we don't have the time to address at length their wrongful thinking here. Right? The reality is that physical, earthly wealth and poverty are not directly connected to one's righteousness or lack thereof. But Jesus doesn't concern himself with that here in this moment. In fact, he affirms the gravity of this question. Who could possibly enter the kingdom of God? Who can be saved? Jesus says, no one can. Jesus looked at them, verse 27, and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Jesus says, you're right. Salvation is impossible with man. There is no man that could ever enter on their own merit. Rich, poor, righteous, unrighteous, it is impossible. No man has the password. But the good news is that God does which is our last point. Those who enter the kingdom do so with a powerful God. Right? The only way that we can be saved is by leaning on the mighty work of God who makes the impossible possible. It is solely 
the work of God, fueled by his love and grace and enacted by his son, that anyone can find eternal life, right? As we read in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, what's so incredible here is that our entire list, every requirement for entrance to the kingdom has been done by God. In fact, you likely noticed that all four points were just variations of the same thing. Right? That, that we need to get out of the way and trust in God because we have nothing to offer in terms of our own salvation. Right? If you thought that along the way that all these points are pretty similar, Cam keeps saying the same thing, thanks for noticing. That's the point for us today and for Jesus as he taught. All we do, there isn't an exhaustive list. All we do is show up with empty hands before a gracious and powerful God as a child before their loving parents, putting our trust in him completely. That is the gospel, right? That's the answer to this man's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is nothing. You can't do anything. But thanks be to God, he has done everything needed for you and for me to inherit eternal life. Right? When it comes down to it, it's God that does it all, who opens the gates, who invites us in, who makes the way, who vouches for us, who grants us access based on who he is and what he has done. And we are not even a part of that equation. So what is the appropriate password for those who enter the kingdom of God? What can we do or say in light of what Jesus has taught us? I think Psalm 100, verse 4 in the message translation puts it best. It says, enter with the password, thank you. Thank you. We simply receive the kingdom with joy as a gift and with thankfulness to God for what he has done. Would you pray with me? Actually, before we pray, I do want to provide an opportunity for those who maybe have not yet received that gift of eternal life to, to do so today. And so as I pray, I invite you, if, if you are going, I, I've kind of depended on myself. I, I thought it wasn't being a good person. I thought I was checking off the box. But, but I also feel like it's just not adding up. If you're in that place and you want to say, I can't trust in myself anymore, I want to trust in God, I encourage you, as I pray, I invite you to just pray these words along with me, asking God to see past our righteousness or lack thereof and see what Jesus has done as our authorization into his eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are good, even though I am not. God, I know that I have sinned against you and my good deeds are insufficient and I'm sorry. But in your goodness, you have shown me your love through Christ's death on the cross that I may have eternal life. God, I believe in you. I believe that Jesus died and rose again. And I ask you to grant me the righteousness of Christ instead of my own that I may be with you forever. Come into my life. Change my heart day by day that I may look more like my Savior. My password is thank you and nothing more. 
Amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch. <laughs>